Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. We're going to be continuing a series that we've been in for a couple weeks now. This is technically week three of a series that we've been kind of diving into the fundamentals and the foundations of what church is. That's been the goal of the series that we've been in, kind of trying to pick apart some of these more important aspects of what the church is and what we need to understand about it. And this series has been called Who We Are. That's the title of the series. And that series title is very fitting for this week because uh, the, the message that we're going to be looking into today is literally looking to answer the question of and define who we are as the church. That's the whole point. In fact, the title of today's message is going to be, Who is the Church? Who is the Church? That's what we want to, want to look at. That's kind of the fundamental thing that we want to answer and get a little bit deeper into today. And I was praying about this this week. Um, I knew the, the topic of what was going to be talked about this week, and I was trying to really dig into it, and I was asking the Lord to lead me and kind of show me what needed to be understood. And as I was pondering over this question of, who is the church? I realized that it can be thought of in like two different ways. There's two ways you can think of this question, who is the church? The one way you could do it is physical identity of the church. So literally, who are the people of the church? That kind of a way. Who is the church? Literally, who are they? What are, who are the people that make it up? But then there's another way you can think of it, a little different way, in a way that's looking more at the purpose so who is the church is a, is a question that's a little bit more internal. So it's a way of looking at it like what makes the church the church? So who is the church? You can take it these two different kind of directions. And what I was kind of digging into as I was studying this is to find the answers to both of those questions, whichever way you think about it, because both of them are very important. And I want to, before we really get into it and start studying this, I just want to preface with there is so much here on this topic. The stuff that we're about to talk about is like just barely scratching the surface of all the things that there is to find. So I want to encourage you guys, one, as, as this is being taught and as we're going through this, if things stick out to you, I would personally love to talk to you more about it. So if you have questions and you want to know more, if there's something that you wondered more about, I'll be out there in the lobby after services and I would love to talk with you guys. But also, as the Holy Spirit's kind of stirring your hearts and different things, Go to the Word yourself and dig in further, because there is so much here that we're not even going to get to talk about. I'm going to do my best to break it apart as much as I can, but there's just so much going on. And I was personally super excited about it as I was studying it, so I was a little bummed that I can't share it all. So I just want to encourage you guys, don't just leave it with what I say, because there's so much more there. Um, But what we're going to be doing today to answer both of these questions is we need to begin um, to define the word church. So if you were here a couple weeks ago, we actually did this kind of already. Um, week one, we, we did this, defined what church is. Um, but we need to do that one more time just, just to refresh ourselves. We need to make sure we're all on the same page so that we can keep building on that because that's where this first answer is going to come from in an understanding of who the church is, getting the physical identity. So the first thing we need to answer, what is the church? This is what we're going to be doing right now. And we're just going to try to define it. And it's going to be pretty easy to do. If you guys want to turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we're going to read one verse really quick. We're jumping in the middle of some stuff that's going on, but we're really just worried about one phrase that's going to help us answer this question. So I'm going to read it for us now. This is Jesus speaking to Peter. 
He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this is where we're going to begin. Like I said, this is Jesus. He's speaking to Peter, but he says something really important. He gives us a phrase that's really, really, really important for us to just pay attention to. He says, I will build my church. That's what we're going to pick apart for just one second. When Jesus is saying this, he uses this word church, but he didn't say it like we say it. He didn't say it in English. He didn't say church. He would have been speaking likely Greek in this point, and he would have said ekklesia. That's what the word is here. That's what's translated here to church. But that word ekklesia in its original intent, the way it was originally said, means assembly. That's what it means. So we say church, but they would have heard assembly. And it's important to notice that back at that time when Jesus would have said this, he said, hey, I will build my ecclesia, my assembly. It didn't have a religious connotation to it. The way we think about it, when we hear church, it, we kind of you know, perceive faith-based something. Like that's kind of how we think about it, but that's not how it was back then. Um, an assembly, just to give you guys the definition of that, it's kind of important. An assembly is a group of people gathered together for a common purpose. That's what assembly means. And this word, when Jesus is using it back then, it was a very neutral word, and it would get its deeper meaning of what kind of assembly it was based on the words that were connected to it. So technically, someone could have said, uh, my ecclesia is a mob of rioters. That could be an ecclesia. Um, it could have been said in a way of, my assembly is a group of people coming together to sing songs and have fun. It could be a tiny little group of people meeting together in a little assembly to eat a meal together. Those all qualify under that word. It gets its deeper meaning based on what it's tied to. And Jesus does tie it to something. When he says ecclesia here, Jesus says, not that it's just any kind of assembly. He literally says that it's my assembly. My assembly. So what that means for us is that this is an assembly of Jesus's people. This is an assembly of Jesus's people who are under his authority That's who his assembly is. That's who his church is. So what that means is that if you're here today, and if you have personally trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you've believed in him as your Savior, that he is the only way to receive salvation, you believe that you're a sinner, you wanted to repent from your sins, and you said, yes, Jesus, you are the answer, and you've turned to him, and you've received his Holy Spirit as he's He's come to you as you've come in that moment of repentance. He sent the Holy Spirit to you to live with you, within you. And now that Holy Spirit is guiding you and showing you how you should live your life. And you expect and hope that one day the Holy Spirit that's in you is going to resurrect you and give you eternal life in the end. If that's you today, then that means that you belong to Jesus's assembly. You belong to the church. You are a part of the church. So that is the literal, physical identity of the church. It's those who belong to Jesus' assembly. It's pretty straightforward. That's where we get that, that answer from. But an assembly, like we talked about a minute ago, by definition, must have a common purpose. 
So we know who the people are. We know their identity, literally. But we need to know the purpose. What is the purpose behind these people who are meeting? What is their common aim and goal? I'm going to tell you guys right off the bat. We're going to dig through it in a minute. But I'm just going to tell you them straight away. The two things that are our purpose as the church. To pursue holiness and to worship. It's that simple. That's the two that's the purpose, those two things. So we're going to find this, and it's going to really be painted in an awesome way for us to understand. We're going to find this by studying 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So I'll give you guys just one second to turn over there. We're going to read this together. But this is going to help us answer these questions on a little deeper level for ourselves and really see how this comes together. So we're just going to read verses 1 through 3 first. It says, So put away... All malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So these are these first verses we kind of just want to dig into a little bit. The first point where we emphasize this heart of of pursuing holiness is going to come from this. It's literally just the church is a people in pursuit of holiness. That's what we're reading right there. That's what we read in those three verses. The church is a people in pursuit of holiness. So I want to show you how this makes sense off the text with what we read. We're told right in the beginning that we need to put away all malice. That word means wickedness. We need to put away all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. All of that stuff's got to go you got to put it aside. Stop doing it. So that would imply, if you need to put it away, that would, that would imply that the default setting of your life is to be doing all those things. That the way you live apart from God is to be doing wickedness, to be somebody who is hypocritical, to be envious, to be slanderous. So as, as the church, we're told that we need to put those things aside, stop doing those things. And the whole point of that is because as Jesus' assembly, we should look different than the world. We're not supposed to look the way that the world looks. If God changed us, we should be different. If God changed us, if he did a work in us, then why are we doing all the same things they're doing? So for, for us, as the church, we should be changed. We should look different. And that idea of putting away and looking different, that is literally the definition of holiness, to be set apart. That's what holy means. So the church is supposed to be holy. The church is supposed to be set apart, to be used for a different purpose. That's why God has called us to do these things, to put those things away, to stop living in that default setting of the world. The trouble is, if you don't have truth, then it's really hard to pursue holiness. If you don't know what the truth is, it's really hard to start to live it out, which is how we put all these things aside. And that's why um, Peter, who's writing this, went on to say that we are supposed to long for pure spiritual milk. He says, long for pure spiritual milk. That phrase can seem a little bit mystical when we, when we read it, can kind of come across as like, like, oh man, that's kind of abstract. How do we do that exactly? It's actually pretty clear. And I want to explain and kind of make a little more sense of it. So the word long means to desire a lot, desire greatly, crave it, like on a deep level. It's saying crave or desire greatly pure spiritual milk. So 
Unfortunately, and if you're reading the ESV, like, like what I'm reading out of, this is not a really good translation of what that wording is. Um, the word spiritual right there in Greek was logikon, and it implies a different kind of meaning. Um, a better way that you could translate this that would make way more sense, and your Bible might actually say this if you're in a different version, it would say, long for the pure milk of the word. That's what it would say. That's a much closer, accurate translation to what is actually being said. So the point of him saying that is that we're supposed to long for this pure milk of the word because that's how you learn truth. That's how you learn what God wants for your life. That's how you learn how to be holy, what God's character is like. It comes from his word. It's very reasonable and understandable for us to come to those conclusions when we're in his word and and digging into it regularly. That's why we're told to long for it. He literally says right after this, long um, for this pure spiritual milk or the milk of the word so that you might grow into salvation. The idea is that you're going to mature, that you're going to grow into the fullness of what God has for you in your life. You're going to come to a complete understanding of what it means to be saved Instead of being just an infant, a newborn baby, you're going to grow into maturity as you dig into his word and as that truth is revealed and as you're putting aside all of that stuff. The whole point of that is that that we would be growing in, in truth so that we would mature into the life that Jesus has for us. So that's why the church is supposed to be a people in pursuit of holiness. You put away those things and you pursue the new thing, Jesus's commands, his word. That's where you find it. And we're told to do these things if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So this is kind of like a reality check on our hearts is what that little phrase is supposed to be. Because it's saying, hey, if you have actually tasted that the Lord is good, if you claim to be saved, you should be doing that stuff. And if you're not doing them, then you need to check twice about what's going on in your life, what you really do believe, what you're building your life on. That idea of if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, it's that a taste should spark a hunger for something. So if you've tasted salvation, if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior and the Holy Spirit is in you and he's supposed to be leading you, if you've tasted that goodness of God and you're seeing that in your life, that should spur you to go further, to continue to put aside those things, those things that are hard to set down, those, those things that look like the world that we don't need to be doing anymore. The, the heart of it is that those that desire for truth and knowing God and digging deeper into salvation, it's going to lead us to get into the word. And I know for a lot of us, that's not easy. I know for many of us, myself included, sometimes it's hard to put away the old things. It's hard to be holy. Sometimes it's, it's challenging. It's uncomfortable. But we're told to do that if we've tasted that the Lord is good, whether it's comfortable or not. I know for a lot of us, reading God's word, we'll, we'll say things like, oh, I don't really like to read. I don't find that fun. We'll say things like, oh, it's confusing. I don't really get it. It's just kind of too hard for me to, to grasp. That's not an excuse. We're told to long for the pure milk of the word. Dig into it. Allow the Holy Spirit to start to, to teach us. Lean on others to help us learn. Make it a habit in your life. If we're, if we're not doing those things, then we're going to be in a really bad place. And I, I really do think, unfortunately, there are many people in the church today 
not all, but there's a lot of people in the church today who are not pursuing holiness, who aren't living different than the world. And there's a lot of people who are not in the word on their own. They don't long for it. They don't crave the word at all. And because of that, they're malnourished. They're weak. They don't have any structure and strength. And that's not what God intended for his assembly at all. That's not what he ever wanted for us. The church is an assembly of people who are marked by change. They're marked by it. The church is a group of people in pursuit of holiness, trying to grow in truth, wanting to grow, wanting to understand, wanting to open this up and get into it so that we can follow God's truth. The church is supposed to be doing these things. The pursuit of holiness, doing that, the reason the church is supposed to be engaged in this constantly, that this is one of the primary purposes of the church, is because this is how we, as followers of Jesus, look more like Jesus. You're not going to look anything like Jesus if you're not pursuing holiness. Your life's not going to resemble anything like Jesus' life if you're not actively putting away all of those old things, the things of the world. If you're not being filled up with truth, then you're going to be believing the lies of the world. You're going, to be, be, you're going to be believing lies about yourself that are not true and living in a way that's not good. So you have to be engaging in these things so that you can look more like Jesus. And that's also a part of us just following Jesus, following his ways, following um, the, the things that he has for us. And that's why um, Peter, in what he's writing here, he goes right on to say that that's what we're going to do, that we should be doing these things so that we can follow Jesus further. Let's read verses four and five. It says, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there's a lot going on here. We're going to unpack it together, but this is getting into the purpose of worship. Our, our second point today, it's our, our last point, is the church exists to worship God through the Spirit's leading. That's why the church exists. The church exists to worship God through the Spirit's leading. So we just read a couple of verses. What we saw is that there's this picture that's being set up for us. That's what he's trying to get across. There's this word picture that Peter's trying to begin to paint of Jesus and the church and how they go together. And it's, it's really, really beautiful, actually. And it starts off by calling Jesus a living stone. That's what it said. We come to him a living stone. That phrasing is kind of odd. But there's a lot more depth that's supposed to be going to it. This is actually a reference to a couple other scriptures from the Old Testament. It's referencing Psalm 118, verse 22. If, if you're interested in this, which I think some of you will be, write these down so you can go check them later. We're not going to read them specifically. But Psalm 118, verse 22 is where one of these references comes from. And then the other one is from Isaiah 28, verses 16 and 17. Both of these scriptures are talking about God's character and the impact of God in people's lives. So Peter, when he's writing about this, he says, you're coming to him as a living stone. He's alluding to these two scriptures because both of those scriptures talk about God and his character as a cornerstone. 
that word cornerstone, it's, it's a, a building term. So back in the Old Testament and back in the old days and still in some parts of the world today, they'll use a, a stone. It's cut out. It's very precise and it's called a cornerstone, and it's very important. It's like one of the most important parts of building a a building or a structure. And that cornerstone's literally going to be used in the corner. It's going to be the first one that you lay, that you put down, and that one is going to determine two things. It's going to, the cornerstone's going to determine the boundaries, so everything else is going to fit inside of it. Nothing will be outside. That's going to be the edges. And then it's also going to determine what's considered level. So every other stone that gets placed is going to be based off that one. So that's important because it's saying that Jesus is a living cornerstone. That's what we're supposed to be getting across. He's the first piece. He's the first one that everything else is going to fall into alignment from. And then after it says that Jesus, we're coming to him, a living cornerstone, it says that we ourselves are being built up as living stones. So we're being built up into this spiritual house. So it's continuing to use this terminology. We as individual people, we are like living stones, getting stacked up on top of Jesus to build this structure of a spiritual house. So this is where things get really, really, really cool and really interesting. Um, That word spiritual, when it says that we're being built up into a spiritual house, this is different than when it was used last time. It's a different word entirely. It's pneumatos. It means literally of the Spirit. So the idea is that this is the work of the Spirit who's doing the work of building us up. The Holy Spirit is the one stacking us. He's the one making us into this house. It's the Spirit's work. And he's the one aligning us with Jesus. He's making us level with Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to work out. So we have this really cool picture of the Holy Spirit engaging with us, each of us who We said, if we believe the Holy Spirit's come to us, he's in us, he's guiding us, leading us, he's stacking us into this spiritual house. And then that word house is really cool because it has a double meaning. It's got two kind of aims. One, this idea of house, when it brings it up, it's talking about or trying to refer back, it's trying to paint a picture of the Old Testament temple. So if you know anything about the Old Testament, Um, summarize what the temple was, what it was used for. It was a place that God dwelt. It's where he, he came, he resided. God dwelled in the temple. It's a place where God was felt by the people. He was experienced tangibly by the people in the temple. And then it was a place, the temple was a place where God was praised and thanked and worshiped. So it's really cool that this idea of us coming to Jesus, a living cornerstone, being stacked up by the Holy Spirit as living stones into a temple, a place where God is dwelling, where he's engaging, where he's interacting. It's this really cool picture for us to how we should view the church. But the other meaning that you can take from it that's really cool is house can also just mean a household or a family. And this one is really precious, I think. When I, when I dig into it. It's really cool because there's this idea of each of us being stacked together as a spiritual family by the Holy Spirit. He's placing us as these individual stones. And think about how a family functions, the, the beauty of what takes place or should take place as a family. We're a bunch of individuals. We're all different. We're separate from one another, but we are all united through 
blood. In this case, the blood of Jesus. But we're united together as one family unit. And each of us, regardless of age, gender, skills, each of us has a place in the family. Every single one of us, we have a place, we have a role, we have a way that we can help the family, serve the family, love the family. It may look different than one another, but the beauty of this is that we, coming to Jesus, our living cornerstone, are being stacked in to a, a spiritual house of living stones, all stacked on one another, given a place in that family to hold one another up, to lean against one another, to serve one another, to care for one another. So we're getting this really cool picture of what the church is supposed to be as an assembly of Jesus's people. And then right after it shares this, it's not just for for our joy and benefit. We get a lot of joy and benefit of it, being able to be this spiritual house where God is dwelling and experienced and felt and where he's praised and getting to be a spiritual family. But there's purpose behind it. And that's why it goes on to say that we're being stacked into this spiritual house of living stones to be a holy priesthood. So again, this is alluding back to the Old Testament. So if you don't know a lot about the Old Testament, the priests in the Old Testament had a really important role. The priests had a job to do. And it boils down, to make it really simple, to leading the people in worship. That's what they were supposed to be doing. Leading the people in worship, showing the people what it meant to worship God, how to interact with the living God. And this was really cool because the priesthood, as they lived out their role, showing the people how, how to worship, what it meant to worship, as they led the work of the temple, as that happened, this was supposed to be an image to the whole world, all the people of the world, all the other nations, as they looked at the temple, as they looked at the people of Israel and how they worshiped God, is supposed to be an opportunity for the world to see God's incredible character and love. It was supposed to be this opportunity for the world to see what it looks like to walk in holiness. And that was supposed to stir the hearts of outsiders, that they would see the incredibleness of it, of what truth truly looks like lived out. So we're told that we are being stacked into this spiritual house, that we're being done This is being done to us by the Holy Spirit's work so that we would be a holy priesthood with a specific job. What did it say the job was? It said to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That's why this is all happening. We're made into this priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. These spiritual sacrifices, that's worship. Spiritual sacrifices... Those are, those are our way of worshiping God. And it doesn't look the way that they did in the Old Testament necessarily. It looks a little bit different now, but it's worship all the same. That's why we exist. The church exists to worship God through the Spirit's leading. The thing is today, when we talk about these spiritual sacrifices, they come at the cost of ourselves. Instead of it being an, an animal like they had it back then, um, now it's, it's a cost to us. And I want to remind you guys of just a quick verse. You can look this up later as well. But Romans 12.1 says that we are to come to God and offer up ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable act of worship. 
We do that because this is how we honor God. It, it costs us ourselves, but we're doing that because we want to glorify God. We want to look more like Jesus. We want to praise Him. We want to worship Him. So for us today, the way that we worship really comes from three areas. Um, there's three kind of spots in our life that we worship God. And this is an ongoing thing. I know a lot of times when we think about worship, we think about it like what we did right before the message, singing songs. That, that is worship. It's not, that's not untrue. But that's just one little piece of worship. Worship is way, way more broad than that. The three areas that we worship God, that we do these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God, are, are going to be this. We worship with our bodies. Our bodies we use as living sacrifices to God in the things that we do, the sing, things we act. Worship through singing, that would be, I think, considered one of those where we're using our bodies to praise God. We're lifting our hands in submission to Jesus during worship. That's, that's one way. There's way more tied to that. It could, that one could also mean to suffer under persecution, but we willingly go through those things in order to honor and glorify God and to stand for truth. Those are a couple ways, but that's just one area. Our bodies, that's one way of spiritual sacrifice to God, one way of worship. Another area is through our time. This is why worship and being the assembly of Jesus' people, it's not supposed to be just considered what we're doing today. It's not one day a week. It's not just gathered together like this. It's way broader than that. It's supposed to be taking place every single day, in large groups, in tiny groups. It's supposed to be taking place constantly. We're supposed to be using our time to glorify God. So we can do that through meeting together in all these different ways, all different times of the week. And we also do that by giving our time to glorify God. Instead of just using our time for ourselves to be comfortable and relaxed and do what makes us happy all the time. Instead, we say, no, okay, what I'm going to do, I want to worship God. So yes, it's going to take my time, but I'm going to go serve the people. I'm going to go out I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do local missions. I'm going to go serve people. I'm going to go help my brother and sister in Jesus who are struggling with something, who has, has a need, um, broken down cars. Um, this is something that just happened the other day. We have uh, some friends whose car just broke down, and one of our friends decided, hey, I'm going to use my time, and I'm going to go help them. I'm going to help kind of show them what, what might be wrong. I want to help them out, help give them more information. That's using your time as an act of spiritual sacrifice, as worship. But we're called to do that in all different ways. So our time is another area that we worship. And then the last area that we worship, and this is the one that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, finances. A lot of people like to, hey, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna tithe. That's great. We should tithe. That's really important. But we're called to be generous, to not just be thinking of ourselves with our finances, but to be looking at our brothers and sisters, these other living stones who are built up and being stacked in the spiritual house, the other members of the family and say, hey, I see a need and I'm going to help them. It's going to come at the cost of maybe me getting this thing that I wanted, but I want to glorify God. I'm not just doing it for their benefit. I'm doing it as an act of worship to Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Those are the three areas that we worship. The church, the church exists to worship God through the Spirit's leading. Because the Spirit is going to be the one leading us and stirring us at all these different times of when we give our time, when we give our money, how we use our bodies. He's going to be the one defining that. And it's going to be happening constantly. But there's so much beauty in it. 
So today, if you claim to be a part of Jesus's assembly, pursue holiness. Make that your aim. That's why we exist. That's our purpose. That is who we are as the church. If you're here today and and you claim to be a part of Jesus' assembly, understand that you are made to worship. It's the whole purpose of human existence. Since the beginning of time, we were created to be in relationship with God, worshiping God, bringing Him glory and good pleasure. That's why we exist as humans. And that's what the church is supposed to be existing as today, to, to model that. And the reason we do that, we pursue holiness and we pursue worship and we do those things. We come into alignment with Jesus as our cornerstone and we're built up into this spiritual house. The reason that this is all done is because it's through our worship that God's character and his love is displayed to a broken and lost and dying world. And as they see the church, as they look upon the way the church exists, not just what this looks like, what we're doing right now on a Sunday, but how the church, the assembly of Jesus' people, cares for one another on a daily basis. As your neighbors look at you and in your family and, and the, the people who come around you as, as your church family, and they see how much you love one another, you don't think that's going to spark something in their minds? Like, whoa, that's different. What's up? Why do they do that? Why are they so caring? Why are they so selfless? That's the act of pursuing holiness and worship at work being displayed to the world, showing God's character to the world. But if we're not doing those things, the world just doesn't see anything. We just look exactly the same as they do. Why would they want to be a part of this? So it should be our aim to be pursuing holiness and worship. That's why we exist. That is what it means when we ask that question, who is the church? That's, that's who it is. So I hope that some of that stuff jumped out, to, out at you. I know I didn't give you guys a lot of specific ways to put it into action, but that's why I want you guys to pray through, and like we said a minute ago, be led by the Spirit. See what He asks you to do. Seek Him. There's not going to be a one-size-fits-all blanket, hey, this is how you do it. But if you are a part of Jesus' assembly, then that's what we need to be doing. So ask the Spirit and he'll, he'll lead you. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.